Well, good evening. I'm glad to see all your smiling faces here this evening. And I'm glad for us to be able to get back to the book of Acts. If you're new and visiting, I just want to, by way of introduction, let you know that my name is Brian Parks, and I'm one of the elders of this church, of Covenant Hope Church, and you're welcome here. You're always welcome here. At any given moment, on any given day, in places all around the world, the church of Jesus Christ is under oppression and pressure and even persecution. Christians are experiencing violence. Today, in different places all around the world, Christians experienced persecution. And yet, the church of Jesus Christ continues. I'm encouraged to uh, get an email regularly. It's called Middle Eastern Concern that tells me about different individuals to pray for, particularly in our region that are experiencing persecution. This summer in June, I received an email. It said, pray for four Christian converts from Iran who had given their lives to Christ and sometime last year had been convicted in court of acting against national security because they'd given their lives to Christ. They appealed, and in February it was turned down, sentenced five years in prison. This past June, or actually in October, they had to show up at Evan Prison, the notorious Evan Prison outside of Tehran, to begin serving their five years of prison, separated from their families, all four of them. Just last month, I got an email from Middle Eastern Concern of a family that had turned to Christ in Somaliland in the Horn of Africa. At an October 5th press conference of Somaliland, police colonel stated that two individuals had been arrested for being apostates and evangelists spreading Christianity. He also threatened that whoever dares to spread Christianity in this region should be fully aware that they won't escape the hand of the law enforcement officers and that the spread of Christianity will not be allowed and is considered blasphemy. He encouraged citizens to report their neighbors if they turn to Christ. The arrest and detention of the couple has caused great fear among the local Christian community with many believers fleeing abroad. The church of Jesus Christ is always under pressure, but the church of Jesus Christ is Christ's bride, and so Christ's protects her, and she will not fail. One thing that I want, to, want you to see in this passage in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42 this evening is this, that God's church grows through gospel preaching despite all opposition. God's church grows through gospel preaching despite all opposition. Now, when we left off three weeks ago, we had just read uh, at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, and we saw that the church was incredibly generous with one another. There was one of those summary paragraphs in Acts at the very end of chapter 4, and it basically explained how there wasn't a needy person among them. 
in the church there in Jerusalem. That people were selling their possessions, even land or houses that they owned, and coming and laying the money at the feet of the apostles so that they would distribute the money to those who had need. And it pointed out a specific man named Barnabas. Barnabas, of course, we'll hear about later on in the book of Acts. Barnabas, they nicknamed Son of Encouragement. He did just that. He sold a field, and he brought all the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Immediately after that, we pushed into chapter 5, and we saw that there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they did the exact same thing that Barnabas had done. They went and they sold a field, and they brought the money and set it at the feet of the apostles to be distributed, except for there was one big difference. They lied. They lied and said that all the money that they had laid at the apostles' feet was actually all the money that they had earned from the sale of the property. And immediately, given supernatural wisdom by the Holy Spirit, Peter confronted Ananias first. He was the one to show up first apart from his wife. Peter accused him, and at the end of the accusation, he dropped dead right there in front of everyone. Peter had told him, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Then Sapphira entered in, and she was asked the question, was this all the money that you received from selling the property? She said, yes, it was. Immediately, she dropped dead as well. And of course, the result was that great fear spread among the whole church and everyone that heard about it. So not only the church was gripped with the fear of God, an appropriate reverence and awe, but also all those who heard the story about it beyond the church were certain. Now here in chapter 5, beginning in verses 12 through 17, we're pushing in and we have another one of these summary paragraphs, and we see here miracles and multitudes pouring into the church. Miracles being done in the church, multitudes pouring in. That's how we can title these verses 12 to 17, miracles and multitudes. It's the first of three points this evening. Now, we see in verse 12 this summary verse, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. That's where the church gathered in the temple precincts to hear the apostles preach the gospel. Now, beyond this verse 12, we begin to see that there are different responses to God's working through the apostles. If we skip down and look at verse 14, we see that large numbers of people were pouring into the church. Men and women, multitudes, it says, were coming to Christ. The church is growing rapidly. We know from chapter 4, back in chapter 4, it said that there were at least 5,000 men who were believers in the church. By now, surely there are thousands more. But there's also a varied response from people just pouring into the church and gathering with them in Solomon's portico. And we see that in verse 13. Look there with me. It says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
That's kind of a confusing verse. What is happening here? It seems that there's a division, that there's some who are afraid to join with them, but everyone is holding them in high esteem. The church was thought highly of by all the people around them, even those probably who weren't Christians as well. They saw how generous they were. They saw how they loved one another. They were people of good character, but there were some that were afraid. Why would that be? Well, I think if we looked back in verse 11 from the previous passage, we see the reason. There was great fear. There was great fear and awe. There was a sense of God's presence working among this people. And it drew some people in, and it pushed some people away. Now, I think that when we consider what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, what we saw there in those verses back at the beginning of chapter 5 was really God unilaterally acting to church discipline Ananias and Sapphira. God had put them out of the church permanently when He struck them dead, and He was protecting His church. You see, church discipline in that case, enacted by God unilaterally, had made it clear what was fake Christianity and what was true Christianity. And the people all around the church sat up and noticed. Brothers and sisters, church discipline that's done with the Spirit's guidance sharpens our and the world's understanding of what is a true life of faith. It sharpens our understanding. I mean, we've all run into people before, perhaps in your workplace, maybe in your family, people who have pointed out flaws in the church, hypocrites in the church, they say. And maybe they've told you stories and they say, I know this church and there was this pastor and he did such and such and the church did nothing about it. Or there was this elder and he was caught doing such and such and the church just let him continue to serve like nothing happened. Churches, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. You and I have heard that, haven't we? You see, when the church doesn't take seriously its holiness and purity, then the world around us is confused about what is real Christianity. What does it mean to really follow Jesus? Who speaks for Jesus really? And church discipline helps sharpen the picture and the description of what it means to be a Christian. Thank God for church discipline. A holy church holds out a beautiful Savior to the world. And so we see in this passage that some were afraid to draw near, but many were pouring in. The ministry of the apostles, as we continue reading through this passage, looks so much like the ministry of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? They were doing signs and wonders, healing people left and right. People carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, it says, just so that Peter's shadow might fall on them. And this wasn't just happening with people from Jerusalem. They were people pouring in from the towns and villages around, just like what had happened in Jesus' ministry. God had filled the apostles with the Spirit and was leading them 
in the same kind of ministry that Jesus did. And we see that what is happening here in these verses, 12 to, 7 to 16, is answer to prayer. I don't know if you remember, but back in chapter 4, when the apostles were first brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, and were told not to teach anymore in the name of Jesus, they left the council, and what did they do? They went and prayed. And what did they say? Back in chapter 4, verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. God is answering their prayers right here in these verses. He's heard them, and He's working through them. Brothers and sisters, we should pray we should pray just as fervently as they did. We should pray for some of the very same things that they prayed for. We should pray that God would heal those among us who are sick. We shouldn't hesitate to do that. We should pray that if God so desires that He might do miracles in our midst. We should pray for a bold witness that we would speak the gospel without hindrance among the people that we live with here in Dubai. And pray that God would do these things in us. I want to encourage you to take corporate prayer seriously. One of the ways that you can do that is to make our Monday night Zoom prayer meeting. It happens from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. Make that a priority. It's only one hour in your week. One hour, and you don't even have to leave your home to be there, so to speak. Come and tune in. We pray for our church. We pray for our witness. We pray for the Lord to be at work amongst us. If we pray, God will answer, just like He answered them. Now, the people held the church in high esteem, but not the Jewish leaders. And when we push into verses 17 through 26, we see the jealousy of the leaders and how they begin to persecute the church. And that brings up our second point this evening, prison and preaching. Prison and preaching in verses 17 through 26. We see there that the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and what motivated them? Well, we see it right there. They were filled with jealousy. And so they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public prison. Jealousy motivated the leaders. You know, it's easy to read this and to think, oh, this is what happens when non-Christian leaders who are opposed to the church perhaps see God at work in our midst and they're filled with jealousy. But be careful, brothers and sisters. We too can fall prey to this sin of jealousy. We too can see God growing and working perhaps through a brother or sister in the church and grow jealous of what God's doing in them. Brothers and sisters, we should celebrate when God is at work in any one of us. We shouldn't allow our hearts to turn in jealousy to one another and seek to advance ourselves over one another, seek to compare ourselves to one another in that way. No, praise God when you see God at work in any single person in this church when fruit is being born in their life for the glory of God. We too can be 
fall prey to this sin of jealousy. But this jealousy caused the high priest and his fellow leaders to put them in prison. And then we have this amazing, amazing account that's covered in just two verses by Luke of a miraculous escape enabled by an angel of the Lord. Just two verses. You know, there's three miraculous prison escapes in Acts. This is the first one. But there's only two verses devoted to describing how it happened. For some reason, it's not all that important to Luke to tell us exactly how it happened. What he wants to tell us is more about what the angel taught and instructed the apostles to do once they were out of prison. What is God's priority for the apostles? It wasn't to flee to the next town. It wasn't even to go back out and do more signs and wonders. No, what is the priority? Look there with me in verse 20. The angel says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. (laughs) And so the very next day, at the break of dawn, the apostles are back in the temple preaching the gospel preaching the gospel. That was God's priority for the apostles. That was God's priority for the expansion of the church. You know, it's interesting through the book of Acts, we have lots of occasions when we are given an account of the gospel message that Peter, say, for example, or maybe Paul, again, we'll find out later in the book of Acts, tells to one person or a group of people. We have these different accounts. But here is this very simple description of what is the gospel. Speak to the people all the words of life. It's a fascinating description of the gospel, isn't it? You know, it reminds me that when Adam and Eve were first formed by God in love in perfection, no sin in them whatsoever, and placed lovingly in the Garden of Eden. What was there for them in addition to all the fruit from all the trees of the garden? It was the tree of life. The tree of life was there for them. They were to have been able to take and eat from the tree of life and live forever in bliss and peaceful relationship with the God who'd formed them. But Adam and Eve rebelled. Adam and Eve turned their back on God. They disobeyed Him. They sinned. And the result of that was death. And they were cast out of the garden, not able to eat from the tree of life. And death came to them eventually. And death came to every single person who was born into the world after them. Death after death after death after death. If there's one thing that we can say about our world, it's that death reigns. It's a world of death. It's mankind's greatest problem, death. And here we have the apostles preaching about the life, this life. You see, the apostles preached about life. The gospel is about life, life conquering death. The gospel is about 
the love of God sending Jesus Christ into the, to the world, his righteous life being credited to us. The gospel is about Jesus' atoning death, the death that we deserved to die because of our sin, the wrath that Jesus took when he hung on the cross. You know, it's no mistake, I think, that later in this passage when Peter gives a gospel summary in front of the council, he reminds the council that they killed Jesus and hung him on a tree. You see, what was once to be the source of everlasting life for them because God in His mercy and kindness had given it to them, now Jesus came into the world to hang on a tree. And now the tree, the cross, would become the doorway of life for anyone who would repent and put their trust and faith in Jesus. Jesus, who rose to new life, resurrection life. That was a part of the gospel that the apostles preached. The resurrection life, this life that was available for anyone who would repent and trust in Jesus. That is the gospel. That's the message that these apostles were bringing to Jerusalem and eventually to the whole world. And that is the gospel for you and I, brothers and sisters. Do you remember throughout your week that the gospel is about life and everything else in this world is about death? The gospel is about eternal life being given to us by the God who has loved us in Jesus Christ. Oh, do you believe this gospel? Do you hope in this gospel? Do you have hope of that life that the gospel holds out to you? If you don't, you can put your trust and faith in Jesus even tonight. Turn to Him in faith. Repent of your sin and know that the resurrection life of Jesus and His righteous life is being credited to you. You will have it without a doubt. Now, the rest of this account that we have in verses 17 through 26 is amazing because there are six verses then that tell us about the authorities' inability to find the apostles. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? It takes just two verses to describe God's miraculous rescue of the apostles, and Luke gives us six verses to describe how much of a failure the officials were in even finding the apostles. You know, the leaders of men are no match for God. God is building His church. We see it in this passage and throughout the book of Acts, don't we? God is building His church. Jesus had promised His disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, brothers and sisters, the church looks frail and small. The church has no police force. The church has no military. Generally, we don't have weapons. The church looks small and insignificant and easy to crush in the eyes of the world. But God, God is with His church, and God cannot be stopped. 
God and His purposes will never be thwarted. And here we see, we see the futility of the leaders and the purposes of God being played out. Shouldn't that give us confidence that no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens among the leaders of men, that God's church will prevail and God's purposes will win out in the end? Oh, let that be an encouragement to you, church. No matter what you read in the papers, no matter what's happening around you in your workplace or in your family, God will prevail. Now, as we move out of these verses at the end of 26 and into 27, the setting shifts. The setting shifts to the council. So eventually, the apostles make their way to be in front of the council. And here we can title these verses from 27 to to the end, 42, flogged but faithful. Flogged but faithful. We saw them in prison and yet eventually preaching, and here they are eventually flogged but faithful. You know, it's interesting when they stand before the council, again, it's not the miracles that they are to answer for. It is that they preach in the name of Jesus. Preaching. Preaching was what they were being commanded not to do and what they were being accused of. Look there in verse 28. This is the accusation of the high priest. We strictly charged you not to teach in his, this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating to me that he refers to the blood of Jesus and that the apostles want to bring the blood of Jesus upon them. You know, it was Peter's… Peter wanted to share the good news of Jesus' blood with the council. Of course, the blood of Jesus would have reminded them that they were guilty, guilty of killing Jesus. But the gospel message is that the blood of Jesus is there for the forgiveness of sins as well, even the sins of the council. If they had only listened, if their hearts had not been hard, Well, then Peter, of course, begins to share the gospel with them in verses 29 through 32. It's very succinct, and he begins, of course, with telling them that they must obey God rather than men. He's told them this before, and he's reminding them who is their ultimate leader. He goes on to tell them that the God of our fathers has raised this Jesus whom you killed and hung on a tree, which is a reference, of course, to Deuteronomy 21, 23, which Paul refers to as well in his epistle to the Galatians in chapter 3, and he sums up that verse by saying it this way, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Peter goes on to point to Jesus who's been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and he lists two names for Jesus. One of them is a brand new name we've not seen in the book of Acts till now, Savior. Jesus is a Savior. And he also refers to Him as Jesus is the leader, the leader. 
This is the same word here that's translated leader back in chapter 3 that was translated as author, author of life. Jesus is the Savior, and Jesus is the leader. Now, if you'll notice at the beginning, at the end of this gospel presentation, of course, Peter finished by telling them that they are witnesses of this, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given to everyone who obeys God. But I wonder if you noticed that word obey. That word obey is at the beginning of Peter's speech, and it's at the end of Peter's speech. You know, obedience and the requirement of obedience to God is not contrary to the gospel of grace. Sometimes people make that mistake and think that obedience is not required. Of course, it's true that we are not saved by our obedience to God's law because, of course, we can't do that. We're sinners by nature. And when we read a law in God's Word, when we understand God's law that's written on our hearts, we inevitably are drawn to break it. But there is a kind of obedience that's required in the gospel. In fact, Peter and Paul themselves in their epistles later in the New Testament would use the phrase, obey the gospel, obey the the gospel. Peter did it in 1 Peter in his epistle. Paul uses it in the epistle to the Romans as well. Obeying the gospel is an important step in becoming a Christian. Now, how do we obey the gospel? Well, we obey what's required in the gospel, and that is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. That's how we begin to obey the gospel. And anyone who does that has been given the gift of repentance. We see this in this gospel presentation that Paul is sharing with them. He says that God sent this Jesus to give repentance to Israel. Repentance and faith are a gift enabled by the grace of God in the hearts of people. And when God gives that grace to any particular person, they are enabled to repent and believe. This is how one obeys the gospel. And then as believers filled with the Spirit, we begin to obey God by the power of the Spirit, living to please our Heavenly Father. Not so that we can stay in the family, so to speak, but so that we can demonstrate that we are a part of the family because we love Him because of what He's done for us. We obey the gospel. Oh, friends, have you obeyed the gospel? If you have obeyed the gospel, if you've repented and trusted in Christ, I want to ask you, are you living as if Jesus were your leader and your Savior, the King of your life, the one who would tell you how to live each and every day, how to conduct yourselves in your family, how to conduct yourselves in your workplace, how to live your life out in the world and amongst the people of God as well. Are you obeying the gospel by the power of the Spirit? Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope you are.
I pray you are. I see so many of you doing that. And if you're not a Christian and you're here this evening, I'm so glad you're here. You're always welcome in our midst. But I want to encourage you, have you obeyed the gospel? Have you trusted in Jesus? Friend, I want to encourage you, don't wait too long. Don't wait too long to take to heart the message of the apostles. Obey the message of Jesus Christ. Now we see in verse 33, turn with me to verse 33, that there's a response, a dramatic response to the apostles and particularly Peter's presentation of the gospel. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now, it's no surprise that the council would eventually want to kill the apostles of Jesus Christ because, of course, they killed Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus reminded them Himself back in the book of Luke, Luke 21, He told His disciples, but before all this they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus had taught them that, and they were remembering it. And it's happening to them as well. You know, anyone who is opposed to the church is ultimately opposing God. And we see that and hear it from the mouth of an unbeliever, Gamaliel, in the following verses, because there is a man, a Pharisee, who stood up in their midst and in this particular case prevented the Sanhedrin from putting the apostles to death. We see the speech of Gamaliel here in the verses. He says, beginning in verse 35 and all the way down to verse 39, And basically, his argument is this. He says, friends and brothers of the Sanhedrin, I encourage you to be careful about what you do with these men. And then he cites two examples of men, Jews, who rose up in leadership and led some kind of rebellion against either the Romans or the existing Jewish leadership, gathered a following to themselves, but were eventually killed and then their followers scattered, and nothing came of it. He gives them two examples of Thetis, who rose up, and another man named Judas the Galilean. And he finishes his argument by saying this in verse 38. Look there with me. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. God, in this particular case, uses Gamaliel. 
in his providence, God worked through Gamaliel to protect the apostles. And we know from reading the rest of this, these verses that the apostles walked out. But Gamaliel's logic is flawed. He's right in that the church of God can't be stopped ultimately, but he's wrong in that at least sometimes temporary success isn't necessarily an indicator that God is with something, a movement, a leader, a people, or a religion for that matter. Of course, we know that there are millions, even billions of followers of other religions which teach things contrary to what the Scriptures teach. They paint a false picture of God and of Christ and of what it means to be saved. So that's not true. But Gamaliel was true in that the work of God ultimately can't be stopped. Now, I want to make clear here that Gamaliel, though God uses him in this particular situation, is not a friend of the church. Gamaliel didn't believe in the church. In fact, he's the one who says, let's wait and see if God is at work in the midst of this movement and these leaders. He didn't believe, but of course, the evidence is all throughout this passage that God is working through the church. Multitudes are gathering to the church, trusting in Christ. Signs and wonders are being done in their midst. Galilean fishermen are rising to prominence through their spiritual authority. Miraculous prison escapes are happening at the hands of angels of God, something that the council didn't even bother to explore. There's every evidence in our passage that God is at work in the midst of the church, enough to have convinced Gamaliel if he would have only looked closely and had a soft heart. Oh, friends, to oppose the church is to oppose God. Gamaliel is right in that. And brothers and sisters, if you know people around you, or perhaps if you're visiting with us this evening and you're not a Christian, perhaps you've said to yourself at some point in time, I'm going to examine the evidence and see if God can convince me that Christianity is true. I'll wait and see. Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. It's not necessarily a bad or wrong thing to think to yourself, but I want to ask you, are you paying attention to what God is saying, perhaps through maybe the members of this church as they talk to you about the gospel and about the truth of the Scriptures? Are you missing what God is trying to say to you? Oh, friend, I would urge you, don't wait too long. Don't stand off supposedly neutral in your search for truth too long. You will not be able to choose the moment when you understand the truth of the gospel. And if your heart is burning within you right now, and the things even that maybe I've said this evening or something that you're reading in this passage or perhaps it's even something that you read this past week about Christianity and it is telling, God is telling you in your heart that it is true. Don't miss this chance to turn to Christ. If you wait 
one day it may be too late, and you will have to stand before God and give an account. And the consequences of that are horrible and great. For everyone who turns away from the ample evidence of the truth of the gospel and that Jesus Christ is the only leader and Savior for the world is eternal punishment. It's hell. Oh, I encourage you, turn to Christ before it's too late. Gamaliel is not a friend of the church, and of course we see that he isn't a friend of the church, especially because he allowed the Sanhedrin to beat the apostles before they were released. The beating of the apostles, what they would have received was likely a flogging, the very same brutal punishment that Jesus received before He was nailed to the cross and crucified. And what was the apostles' response after they walked away from the council with their backs bruised and bleeding? Verse 41 and 42. Look with me at those amazing verses. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They rejoiced. They rejoiced. To suffer dishonor in the community was an honor before God. Jesus had said to them, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. To be punished for obeying Jesus is to be counted worthy by Jesus. To follow His footsteps and suffer was a great honor. What is it about the gospel that can produce this kind of response? It's otherworldly, isn't it? To believe in the gospel is to identify ourselves so closely with Christ that we believe He really is the King of everyone and everything. We really believe that to follow Him is costly, perhaps costing some their very lives, but the reward is so amazingly valuable that we rejoice in perhaps even dying because our inheritance is so very, very great. We're willing to be shamed in front of our family. We're willing, perhaps, to be shamed in front of the community that we come from. We're willing to lose our friends in order to honor Jesus Christ, our King. That's what the gospel does. That's how the gospel enables people to rejoice in suffering. I don't know if any one of us will ever be put in a position where we'll be publicly beaten if we stand faithful for Christ. Probably even fewer of us will have their lives taken for being a Christian. But rather than wonder if you'd be able to do that if one day that should happen to you, ask yourself, am I willing to lose friends by being publicly identified as a Christian? and sharing the gospel with them? If obeying Christ meant perhaps that I wouldn't be able to get married, or if obeying Christ meant that marrying in the Lord would bring rejection and abandonment from my family, would I do it? The dishonor 
that these apostles experienced was public shame. What honor does the world want to give you that you might be tempted to take at the cost of shaming Jesus? The Son of God endured the shame of hanging on a tree for you and I. It's our privilege and honor to bear the shame of the world in honor, to be held in honor by Jesus. Pray that you can live now in such a way that if and when persecution and suffering come your way from those who oppose God, you won't even have to think about it. Obeying God rather than men at great cost will be a joy and a privilege that you'd jump at. We need to pray for those in addition to ourselves who are being persecuted for obedience to Christ, brothers and sisters. Even some in our family, our church family, are in danger and are being perhaps at risk of being shamed in their families for following Jesus. The apostles suffered together. If you're suffering for following Christ, let us suffer with you. Tell those in the church, in your church family, what's happening in your life. Let us stand with you in that. Let us pray for you and give you safe harbor if needed. Our homes are your homes. We will do that, won't we, church? And will you pray for the persecuted church around the world? Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian Christian imprisoned in the dreaded Siberian prison system of communist Russia. And one night, he stayed up listening to the testimony of a Jewish doctor named Boris Kornfield who had come to Christ in the prison. In the prison, he'd heard the gospel. That same night, Kornfield was clubbed to death. His last words were, bless you prison for having been my life. Only the gospel can transform suffering into blessing. Only Jesus can make death become the doorway into life. Stay informed. Stand with your brothers and sisters around the world. Right now, all around the world, even in this country, people are being persecuted for following Christ. One of the things that you and I can do is read biographies of those who've suffered for following Christ. Or subscribe to the very newsletters that I referenced at the beginning of the sermon. It tells us of Christians to pray for on the Arabian Peninsula or maybe nearby who are suffering for following Jesus. Not only did the apostles suffer, rejoice in their suffering, but they continued in their obedience. I love the way that the NIV puts verse 42. It says, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They never stopped, never stopped. Did you see how they were obedient to their calling, whether they were miraculously saved from a prison or whether they were mercilessly beaten? In, in both cases, they were obedient. Put in prison, miraculously freed, they preached the gospel. Dishonored by the authorities by a brutal flogging, they preached the gospel. Brothers and sisters, may we be the people. May we be a church that so deeply believes that the gospel is the hope of life, that we proclaim it day in and day out, 
to see God's church built by His power, whether we're rescued or reviled. And God, God will get the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Jesus. We praise You for His example of suffering, yet being obedient. And we praise You that You've filled us, those of us who have repented and trusted in Christ with the Holy Spirit so that we could believe deeply this message of life and obey You no matter what the cost. May we continue to do that until You return. In Christ's name, amen.